0: I think really successful people and organizations find ways to compress time. Compressing time is a way to create more value in the universe, right? Get it faster, get it now, get what you want without the wait. Thursday morning everybody, we've got a, a really interesting one for you today. I hope it sparks some thoughts for you. Stick around to the After the News segment. We've got a 20-minute masterclass from someone I've worked with for years, Vincent Wynn. He is the founder of an agency called Growth Ninja. And why it's interesting? Is he has a simple and counterintuitive way. He runs an agency, the anti-agency agency strategy that leads to incredibly high margins. So he's a one-person high income agency. He only selects premium clients. He's a one-of-one and he solves an efficiency gap, not a knowledge gap. I was taking notes talking to Vince and I think you will be too. So stick around for that. At the top of the episode, Ian joins us for some business updates. In fact, if you like the pod, we are hiring for the podcast. We don't quite have the job ad finished yet, but we're going to talk about how we're thinking through that and what that opportunity looks like. We're also going to talk about some common money mistakes. That we commonly see with founders, and two new ways that we've noticed that our listeners are using to get paying customers. That and some more news coming your way. Thanks for listening to TMBA Pod. Let's roll it. Boss, man, we've got an intense amount of news to share with the listeners. Favorite all time episode format.
1: What's going on? What happened in the news? what I miss? I don't read the news. You missed my favorite Tropical NBA
0: podcast interview of 2024. Nothing short of my favorite episode of 2024. Mike McCallowitz, my new best friend, he came by the show and he is like so charismatic. <laughs> like this guy, forget about the fact that he writes good books. I'm over that now. I just want to hang out with him. Is he moving to Austin like everybody else? Hopefully. He doesn't need that. Mike's got his own thing going. That's for
1: sure. He can hold down Connecticut or wherever. Like, he doesn't need He's Austin. got an
0: office in New Jersey that was like eight people in there. Like Before I got on the phone call, it was like the elevator music was on, and I was looking at it. He's got books there, but they weren't like color match books, so you know he was reading them. That was one good <laughs> indicator. And, and then he's got like guitars sitting there. He's got like his alma mater's football helmet. And it's just like, man, this is like a man cave. I want to go hang out with Mike and work on the next book.
1: That's amazing.
0: Of course, Mike is the author of Profit First, something we've been thinking a lot about, Ian. And I wanted to talk a little bit about Profit First here at the top, as well as this wonderful book by Greg Crabtree called Simple Numbers, Straight Talk, Big Profits. So the big idea of Profit First is my favorite line from the interview with Mike was, your accountant, their job is to read the tea leaves, but I'm talking about the tea. Mm -hmm. I was like, "What a dunk!" Yes, there is a different Reading the tea leaves is different from the tea. Your accountant is going to read the tea leaves. That's like all your QuickBooks stuff, your P and Ls, your documents, your spreadsheets. But what Mike's talking about is the tea, And, and that's the money. Where is the actual money? So, in a profit first system, you set up five bank accounts. But to simplify, let's just talk about the one where you put the profit. And there's a certain amount of profit that you're projecting you need to make to have a healthy business that goes directly into this profit account, okay?
1: So that's a bank
0: account. That's the T, or as the kids say,
1: the cheddar. Basically, you want to say with this profit first approach, this company needs to make 15%. Yes. And we're committed to that and nothing can interrupt that bank account or that percentage.
0: Or something's going to interrupt it and everybody's going to know about it. And then we know something's broken in our plan, our budget, our financial model. Now, this sounds simple, and it is, but the reality is, is 95% of businesses do it the other way around. They basically say, we made a bunch of money this month, and then we spent a bunch to make it and to support it, and then whatever's left over at the end of the year, that's what we made. And what Mike's saying is, that's not leveraging the power of a financial model in your business. Now, you can do it in other ways. You can have a controller, you can have a CFO, you can have financial models, But what he's saying is, look, for most of us, let's just set up a bank account. We're projecting to make 15% profit. Let's put our money where our mouth is. Let's get the 15% into that bank account. And then when an employee or you wants to dig into that profit, everybody knows something's broken and we have to address that our financial model is breaking down. And I think it's a beautiful heuristic, right? It's something simple we all can set up and it's potentially very powerful.
1: What do you think about like this idea like on day 1 versus like day 200? Go on a little bit. So when we're first starting these businesses out, on day 1 does it make sense to say 10%s going into the kitty here, into this account or 15%s going into the kitty? Cuz it seems like at different phases of the business, different things happen and this is also how you rationalize spending or investing in expensive people or whatever it is. You're like, "Oh, we got to take that 15% out cuz we're going to have this huge launch and this new product that we're developing and it's going to catapult the business to other level. So there's all kinds of rationalization in terms of like why you would like dip into that 15%. So I guess I'm Mm -hmm. just curious, does it make sense ever to dip into it? And then also when you're first starting a business early, early days, does it make sense to do it as well? Mike's answer to that, Ian,
0: is start right now with 1% it's the same thing as put your jogging shoes by the front door. You know what I mean? Like it's just like a good habit. Let's get in the habit of putting aside 1% of your profit. And then as you see the power in it, you maybe you ramp it up to 8%, 10%, 15%. And I think at a certain point you can make a case like this is the CFO's job once you're at 10 million or whatever. So the profit first system, I think as written makes the most sense for companies in that messy middle, like over, half a million bucks in revenue and below 5 million, somewhere in that kind of general range. Speaking of which, I thought we could talk about Greg Crabtree's book because he's asking similar questions that you are, Ian. Basically, okay, profit first, five bank accounts, got it. What's next? And I think simple profit, straight talk, big profits is a great framework for what's next. And I'll just share one of the big ideas from the book and kind of get your feedback on it. So basically, Greg's like, once you're past that half a million dollar point, We have to talk cheddar and we have to talk about what your replacement market value is as someone in the business. Figure out what job you function, you perform that's critical to the business model and pay yourself that amount, or at least put it on a document where you're doing this brainstorming to figure out if you can achieve a 10% profit or more after you've paid yourself a market rate. And Greg's basic point is founders typically don't do this, and as they scale from 500,000 to 5 million, they don't have clarity around their pricing power and their economic model because they're muddying it and they're cooking the books. Yeah. And, And what Greg's saying through his experience is that he's seen a bunch of founders do this and they're not building successful economic assets. What they're functionally doing is building themselves a powerful job, or in some cases, a miserable existence. And so I thought this book was a a really interesting
1: follow on. Yeah. One thing that pops to mind here is the founder stall. And I think that's exactly what you're describing here, basically, which is I've decided I need to make a quarter million dollars a year because that's what I feel like I deserve or like that's how I can support my lifestyle or whatever. And then the business just, that's it. You just die at that point. You figured out How to have a nice little uh, situation going on where it like pays you a quarter million dollars a year, but that's it. That's it. You're at the end of the road because you've decided to take that money out of the business and not reinvest it. So you're not actually running a business. You're trying to make an income. Or at least that's the way it
0: ends up. Where I think what Greg's on about is like, you want to, at a certain point, you have to start getting real, not about just your income, but about the business that you've created and what its potential is to scale beyond you being an incredible operator or skillful founder. So here's the way it, it, I think, plays out often is that you're trying to scale, right? And so what you do is you hire people that you think can contribute to that scale. And then at the end of the year, there's 150,000 bucks left over and you take the 150,000 bucks and pay the mortgage and everything and you're good to go for the next year. You're trying to scale. What Greg's saying is that in a lot of those setups, you would actually have to pay 200000 to replace you or maybe a quarter million. And that's something you need to know about your business because those problems don't get solved when you get to $5 million. And that is the punchline, the wisdom that Mike and Greg are both trying to express through these books is, yes, you can go out and build a sales team right now. And you can give money to the salespeople and then customers will give you more money. But this idea that you're going to end up at a new scale and your profit problem will be solved is often completely untrue. In other words, the businesses don't have the profit power. They don't have the pricing power. And they're obscuring this idea because there's a lot of things you can do to generate more revenue that isn't necessarily sustainable or profitable without that investment. And so both Greg and Mike are saying, Don't catch yourself in this thing that more is better for better or for worse. We often take our cues from the startup community. You raise a bunch of series A, and then what do you do with it? You go out and just hire people. But that obscures the fundamental thing that what startups are doing is trying to stumble upon a business model that profitably sustains. And what Greg and Mike are saying are that be super careful about making that gamble in your small business because. You can rob Peter to pay Paul and then end up at twice the scale, twice the headaches, twice the clients, but the exact same broken business model. So it's much better in both of their estimations to be financially rigorous and maintain your margins while you're scaling, which frankly, I think is a little counterintuitive based on what you'd think by reading the internet.
1: Again, like you said, for years, everybody's taken their advice from startup books right? Which is fundamentally completely different way to run a business and to scale a business and to grow a business.
0: Hire A players and just get them in there. You're going to put an A player on a C opportunity. You're not going to get the benefit that Uber or whatever the case study is. They've got a world-class economic model that they're building. Meanwhile, you've got an agency or an e-com store with margin pressure. And they get into more details, Ian, about like contribution margin and stuff. We can get into it in a future episode, but the the concept is being extremely rigorous from a financial perspective is a great strategy for scaling, actually, which is a little bit counterintuitive. You used to say it back in the day, you have your own heuristic, which is like, when you do business coaching, the number one problem
1: you see is lack of margin. Just that, lack of margin. Yep. It's lack of margin and it, it usually starts from like day one. Too, which is interesting because if you can just catch it in like one of these books or show it to a friend or talk with somebody that has like a similar business, have them be like, yo, that's not going to work three years from now. But nobody does. Yeah. (laughs) Because everybody wants to believe that the margins are going to increase and there's going to be like some huge windfall event or something like that. Yeah. And I get it. There's this gambling, give it to the universe
0: sort of thing. And again, these books help us bring it back in house and say, hey, the universe ain't going to solve this problem for you. So at least put your profits in a separate bank account. But if you got a little bit more time, sit down and figure out what your market rate is and whether or not you can still make 10% on top of that. That's table stakes. And then the challenging part is, can you start to build a leadership team underneath that financial constraint? That's the challenge.
1: Not so different, by the way, of like just putting 5 to 15% of your income into some kind of investment at the end of the day. Set it and forget it kind of thing, and then all of your like living has to fit into like the rest of it, basically. Yeah. You're like, and by the way, this is super
0: hard to do. This, which is why investing like that makes sense for most people. Like, give it to the world class cash managers, aka the S and P five hundred, because they've figured out something that most businesses haven't, which is how to maintain margins, how to be profitable consistently, and how to build teams that can sustain those. You're not just relying on one superhero individual to maintain those circumstances. All right. We got so much news this week. At the top of my list here is just a teaser. We are hiring in the next few weeks, keep your eye out for it, a full-time experienced producer for the Tropical MBA podcast. It's been nine years since we went public with any sort of producer role for this show. And for those of you that have been following the show for many years, we've spent the last couple of years getting our operational house in order. We've got a relatively big business on our hands that we have a bunch of team members, a lot of things to do in terms of management and stuff. And the reason I'm so excited about this is I think we've gotten that stuff to a point where now we can focus really where our hearts are, jumping on these microphones and making jokes and figuring out a way to get the Tropical NBA podcast to the next level so that this can be a sustaining part of what we do for the next five years. We both loved doing the pod. And so I think we're finally in a position where we can really invest in someone high level to come in on a full-time basis and help take the TMBA to the next level.
1: My only request here, Dan, is that um, obviously they've worked with Joe Rogan and that my background can be a green screen. So yes. there can be like fish floating around in the background when we're talking about fishing and things like that. So, Yeah, I think it makes sense for you to have a color-coordinated bookshelf. I just like that to rotate. Again, so like <laughs> if you've worked on the Rogan podcast and you can do that, like you're pretty much a shoe in for this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if you're curious, if you're interested, if you're a, a masochist to the degree that you'd want to work with Ian and I on a daily basis going forward, keep your eye out. Uh, keep your eye on this space. I haven't been this excited about a job post in a really long time. So something that's coming down the pike. Speaking of job posts, how many applications did you get for the DC Black facilitator position? Over 100. So, for some background, our DC Black membership is now has 100 members. And so, Ian and Claire, who are our two current facilitators, couldn't be at every call. So, we put it out there to the TMBA audience, and you guys came through. The level of talent we saw was incredible. Are you ready and able to make an announcement of who has joined us?
1: Yeah. <laughs> it was quite incredible. In fact, I really hope that the producers for the Tropical MBA has the same results. The people that came out of the woodwork to come work for us on DC Black was profound. I was amazed at the people that I got to talk to. I think later on in the year, we're probably going to have to hire three or four more. So everybody that applied to that, they're on the list. I'm going to send out more information when that happens again. But yeah, the two people that are joining us as facilitators have been on the show. Coincidentally enough, Mark Brenwall has been on the show several times, one of your good friends. Yeah, Mark's been on the show
0: a couple times. Actually, one of our most popular episodes of all time is called The Brenwall Code, which is an approach to life I wrote based on my observations of basically playing golf with him for a couple years. And he has a really unique approach to business that served him incredibly well. Former agency guy, technology guy from San Francisco, got involved in internet businesses, started doing what now is called ETA, entrepreneurship through acquisition, <laughs> acquired a small business, blew it up, exited, and now is looking to give
1: back to the community. And so it was really cool that he got involved. And then the other person is Richard Chandra. He's also been on this show. We had a, a bit of a love affair with him, like virtually. And then now we're like really good friends. He's actually uh, lives down the street from me. Says I was influential in that decision. But uh, Richard has been the CEO of a lot of big companies that people know about, About MapMyFitness, Bodybuilding.com, and numerous others. He's been in the tech space since I've been in probably elementary school. And it's just amazing (laughs) to watch people talk to Richard. He came to um, DCBKK this year, and it was just like amazing because Richard has lived this stuff to the bone for so many years that someone can explain a problem to him. And he's like, oh yeah, I've seen this a thousand times this is exactly what's going on here. And just to see people light up, because the way that he like reflects back the problem, he has deep, unique experience there. So having a guy like Richard as part of the community now, I think is a wonderful ad and something that our members are already starting to enjoy. Yeah, I remember having lunch one time with Richard and he was explaining
0: to me like how he runs his team calls. We were like swapping notes. And like his system was a lot better than mine. And then it was like, yeah, because 1,500 people are on the call. So it's got to be good. <laughs> like for Us is like 10. There's 15 people. You can play it by ear a little bit.
1: <laughs> yeah, we get to talk life and business all the time. In that vein, like he's very generous, right? Like I'll be explaining something and you can kind of see in his eye like, oh, dude, that's like table stakes, man. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations figuring that out. So. You're like,
0: so there's this thing called profit and we're really <laughs> focused on it.
1: <laughs> so anyways... Bringing on these two gentlemen into the DC Black community has been a huge lift for the members that are on their mastermind. And then just in general, having them around the community. Speaking of masterminds, Ian, we got a question from listener
0: Tim, who talked about we've mentioned masterminds on the show, but basically this listener has been trying to find a mastermind but isn't having any luck. And my reply was a bit curt, which is you got to create one. And so I wanted to flesh that concept out a little bit here because masterminds are a hard thing to go shopping for. If you want it too much, people don't want you in it. There's a little bit of a dynamic there with masterminds and why it's a service that we've had some success with is the magic isn't really the, the group of people and bringing the right people together. So if you don't have a mastermind, the optimal position is to be the person pulling the group together because then you're going to be in a group with higher quality people. You join down typically, right? But you can create up. If that Every, makes everybody
1: sense. wants to join and go up. By the way, I can't tell you how many people are joining DC Black and saying like, "I want to be the dumbest person in the room." Like that's yeah. their ambition. And I'm like, uh, there's this, a surcharge for that. Yeah, that doesn't work. <laughs> the all dumbest the time. person <laughs> surcharge. <laughs> <laughs> but I understand the concept. Of course, we all want to do that.
0: Well, I've met with a few people that are looking for this sort of thing in the past month or so, and I think the process is actually like one of these simple, complicated things. So the answer is actually very simple. The execution is more complicated. So the answer, if you want to pull together a mastermind group, is you just need to do two things. Number one, you need to know exactly what it is you want. And number two, you need to be working towards that in a way that is
1: demonstrated and clear to others. These two things are very hard to do. When you say like exactly what you want, I think what you're saying is like, you need to know what you're trying to achieve, meaning like, I want to have a business that does X or my business does X and it needs to do Y. Like, this is my goal.
0: Let me tell a story of someone who's been on the show before Davis Wynn. And this is like sort of my interpretation of the story. It's been a while since I've talked to him about it. But essentially, his business helps recent college graduates get jobs at big consulting firms. So he's like, look, this is my business. I want this business to get to seven figures. And that's what I'm working on. If you're working on a similar business and you want to get to seven figures, let's have dinner together every single night for the next 30 days. And does anybody want to guess whether Davis got to seven figures with that business? Yes, of course he got to seven figures. It's so hard though to have clarity around what you want. Why? Because it's scary. Because you have to make a choice because it means you're not going to do other stuff. And I think the majority of people that I meet with that want to start a business, they're just frankly not willing to say what it is they're trying to achieve, straight up. And because they haven't done that, it's hard to identify the next steps. And the reality is pulling together a mastermind with a group of people that are going towards a common goal is probably way easier than whatever barrier is standing between what where you are and where you're going. So if you can't get past the mastermind barrier, It's a decent litmus test that maybe you don't want those things. Maybe you don't see the mastermind as truly that important. And so that's kind of like uh, my unsatisfying response to this query that we get a lot, which is, yeah, if you can't pull together a mastermind, how are you going to get customers? And what I think a lot of people point to is like the things that are less scary. You know what's not scary? Oh, I'm going to build an audience. Yeah, go build an audience, man. Take a couple of years building an audience. It's like, oh, well, once I build an audience, I'll get the mastermind. Here's the reality of how audiences are built. They're built more reliably by doing that hard thing and then talking about it versus like talking about stuff and then eventually doing the hard thing. So I think that's what people, when they see, they meet with people and they say, oh, well, you've got followers and stuff. It sure is easy for you to say, well, I had a mastermind before I had followers and that's why I have followers now. Or whatever. So anyway, that's like the unsatisfying answer, which is, Can you write down exactly what it is you're trying to do in the world? Can you commit to it? And can you be responsible to others? And that's the hard part, even at our high level masterminds with multimillionaires, it kind of sucks to be held accountable sometimes. Sometimes you don't want to be held accountable to yourself or to others for the goals you're trying to achieve, because you could fail. You could just absolutely fail. That's why I call it simple hard or simple complex. It's like, The answer is so simple. You know, just have a goal. But the execution of that can actually be surprisingly complicated. One other piece of news I would be remiss if we uh, didn't mention it here on the pod is a week ago, I woke up at 5 a.m. I did my own version of the miracle morning, which is drinking three cups of coffee and watching SportsCenter. And so I...
1: (laughs) Thank God somebody's keeping it real. (laughs) Oh. Jeez.
0: You know what's going to get my day off right? I wonder who won the hoops last night. That's going to get me started off yeah. on the right foot.
1: You know, it gets my day off right, checking my Twitter in my bed before I get up. <laughs> That's my signature success move. That's right.
0: And a little bit of doom scroll gives me the motivation to go out and yeah. save my corner of the universe.
1: I mean, if I doom scroll in bed, it means I'm not doom scrolling in my office. So isn't that a good thing?
0: The best miracle morning is going directly to your computer and your PJs and just to start in the rack to start to go full speed without any priority sense for priority just work as much as you can all right anyway so i woke up at 5am i preloaded my credit card we've got a new event platform in the dynamite circle and bought my ticket to dcx london dcx london this year there was 100 spaces and i think the ticket was like 700 bucks or so so not cheap And that money is going to a much-upgraded experience for all of us, like cooler venue, better food, all this kind of stuff. Everybody's excited. So John, Shona, and Noel are the members who host this event, and they have a great reputation. Everybody looks forward to going to London every year to hang out with them. So the event sold out in an hour. How do you move 100 tickets in just shy of one hour? How do you do this sort of thing? And what John shared with me is... He's using the WhatsApp as a tool, but the concept is psychological, which is he will have more than 100 members elect interest in going to the event, and he'll put them all into a WhatsApp group. So you're in a WhatsApp group with 170 people, and then you know there's only 100 tickets. So it's like everybody knows there's 170 people who want to do this thing, but there's only 100. And sure enough, like one hour later, we were all Looking at the screen come in, is like stripe, 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 stripe. Obviously, Ian, you have to have a great product. Everybody wants to go to TCX London. That's awesome. Yeah. Super cool. But I just, I do think it's interesting, this kind of demonstrating demand to your target market, I think is really interesting concept. And then just WhatsApp. WhatsApp is really one of the most powerful businesses in the world, if you think about it. I mean, it's got tremendous potential. And so we have over 1,000 of our customers on WhatsApp connecting with each other, connecting with our team, and people are just much more likely to respond to a text than to an email.
1: I haven't heard like a bunch of talk about this, so I think it's worth mentioning here what the shift is, right? The shift, basically, you had like direct mail, then you had email, and then you had social, and now you have WhatsApp. You have your customer's phone number. You have a direct response Like, I can get a response from a customer in 30 seconds. That's crazy, right? This is like a new thing. I think somewhat the same on Slack, too. Slack is kind of in that category, although I wouldn't say on their mobile device kind of open all the time, but close to it.
0: Yeah, WhatsApp is like a little bit more consumer-oriented. And for our recruiting business, for example, shout out Remote First Recruiting, we do have our customers in a Slack group together, which works.
1: We have both, actually. We have the Slack community, but then we also have like the first line of communication with that team is through WhatsApp. Yeah. It's like a little QR code on the website. So I think about this a lot, like the fact that stores aren't open at night. I guess like having kid and working on this business and whatnot, like I get a lot of my personal stuff done at night these days. Mm-hmm. So it's like from 8pm to midnight, I'm trying to buy stuff and I'm trying to talk with people. But I can't talk with people to buy stuff because it's not like during the working hours. And years ago, China was way ahead with this stuff with WeChat. Yeah. You can interface with the company, like you can pay, you can do all your business on WeChat. And I have a feeling that like X and WhatsApp will like go in that direction eventually. And I guess like the question out there is, how can you leverage WhatsApp for your business right now? So for us, it's been incredibly powerful to be able to have your customers on text. Because you can do things like putting everybody in a group, explaining what's going on real time. The questions of your customers get answered in front of your other customers It's a very powerful way to communicate with your customers very quickly.
0: Yeah. And one of the ways you can leverage this stuff is the longer it takes for you to get a conversation started with your prospect, the percentage, it's like a decay, the the percentage that they're going to buy goes down. That's physics. It's like, let's jump on a call next Thursday. You're telling me that you have an extremely powerful business with tons of brand power, tons of pricing power. And they're just lining up for the opportunity to buy that thing from you. Whereas if you're a business that is on the come up and needs to make their way in the world, let's compress that time. Let's get on a text right now. Let's get on a call right now. Let's take advantage of Ian being up at 1030 at night, wanting to make a big purchase. Yeah, let him do that. That's good. (laughs) Why are you going to get him to hop on a Zoom and take some time off of work next week? He might not get off. He might forget about it. He might not be as excited. I think really successful people and organizations, Ian, find ways to compress time. Compressing time is a way to create more value in the universe, right? Get it faster, get it now, get what you want without the wait. So unless waiting is a critical part of the product experience, which in some cases it can be, I think WhatsApp can really be used to speed up that product delivery. Right now, for example, at Remote First Recruiting, you can just click the QR code and hey, maybe a new client is worried about getting the hard pitch from our recruiters. They're going to sit in there and start asking you those salesperson questions like, how much would it be worth to you, Ian, if you could hire a new person for your business? Oh, that sucks. I just want to text this person and make sure they're not going to be a jerk. You build up the comfort level and it's a new brand. Now we're texting. I'm getting some images in my text, my phone. You know what? Let's jump on the phone right now and talk about how much value I can get from my next hire.
1: (laughs) Your idea about the sales decay is very real one. Like, um, I was emailing this guy in England, unrelated, for like some British car parts. And I was like, this, it's going to take me like five days to buy these parts that I need. (laughs) Yeah. Because I'm going to ask a bunch of questions and I'm going to wake up the next day and the time zone change and all this stuff. I'm like, dude, this sucks. We should just be on text. And I think the objection from like the business owner is always, oh, I'm going to get like a barrage of texts that aren't going to lead to sales. Absolutely not true in my experience. If you have a clear product and offering out there, like people want to interact with you quickly and then make the purchase. Yeah. They don't want to like piddle around.
0: Yeah. What do you say to the business owner, Ian, who has text messaging anxiety? Is this going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back? Am I going to be inundated by text all the time?
1: If you have the type of business that your Stripe account just goes ping every second, then maybe you don't have your text messages up but most people like they have to talk through the sale especially if it's like a more expensive product or service this is part of the process basically and it's a way to accelerate sales yeah so if if you don't want to be on the text messaging then I don't know what's wrong with you because you don't like money or sales
0: (laughs) (laughs) think about all the dumb things you text for but now it's money you can text for yeah
1: exactly (laughs) It's like, oh, I'd hate to answer this text at 8pm that's going to net me $1,000. That would be awful. I'd rather watch Netflix, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the
0: cool part is these are repeatable processes. WhatsApp has a wonderful web app. So you don't have to do this stuff forever. It's a way to get momentum, to talk directly to your target market. And someone else can do it in the future. So it's not an indefinite sentence to being interrupted all the time. It can be a a short-term project to get it off the ground. Speaking of. Sales leads, Ian, before we run here, I just want to talk about something that's been happening in our business. We are seen as a trend and it's something I didn't really know about a couple of years ago. It's a position in a company called an SDR. So sales development representative. Previously, I would have known this sort of person as like a sales assistant, someone who does cold email outreach, someone who sets appointments, like an appointment setter or someone who just makes sure your pipeline is full. But Sophisticated organizations have labeled this stuff, created systems around it, and it's called an SDR now. And one of the things I've noticed is that our community is kind of like getting obsessed with SDRs. Like everybody wants an SDR. Like We were looking at our numbers for remote first recruiting, and it's like, I'll pull the last 100 hires. A huge percentage of them are SDRs in Latin America. And so I was poking around with the team, well, why don't we have this as a product? Rather than just being recruiters, why can't you buy an SDR? So we kind of got into the details of it. And I think what's so interesting is two things. First is the cost. So the concept that you could have like a pipeline full of calls that leads money, that's very valuable. And then it's how much is it going to cost me? Two grand a month. And so that value proposition of like, oh, I can like pay for two grand a month with just like two calls. So that's an easy investment. Whereas a salesperson in the U.S. could cost triple that. And then the next thing that's interesting is like this concept of Latin America. And I think the reason it wasn't quite on my radar was this wasn't really possible 10 years ago when I got into the outsourcing game. It was a combination of like language and culture. It just didn't seem like as big of an opportunity to me. And seeing our customers and listeners do a lot of this and have a ton of success It just seems like this is the thing right now. And I think there's a bunch of trends converging. I mean, one is that a lot of the SDRs we're hiring for our clients are coming from SDR agencies. So like they've spent the last five years learning how to talk tech, learning how to do filtering phone calls, learning how to set up successful sales calls. But everybody knows that agency lifestyle. And so now what they're doing is they're taking that skill set, working from home and getting a pay raise still working at an incredibly low price, but directly for small businesses in North America. So I don't know. It's been an interesting trend. We're seeing like, I bring it up because we're seeing like, it's a moment in time when there's an incredible amount of enthusiasm on both sides of the deal. Like our customers are like, wow, these SDRs, they speak great English. They have great written English. I'm getting my pipeline full. And then the SDRs, they're not low quality like we've seen in some of the VA spaces in previous sort of trends. Like these SDRs are really good and they commonly have like experience. They're not coming in cold off the street. This is what they do. And so there's kind of a moment and I don't know how long that window will stay open. Typically what you see is the prices get arbitrage out and the kind of the quality doubles in price over time or whatever. But at least right now, our customers are indicating to us, like, man, just get me some more SDRs in South America. That seems to be really working for people. And certainly for us, for recruiting, it's awesome to stumble onto a product where people are basically handing the product to us saying, like, this is what we want.
1: I think you did a good job there. Now I'll tell the real story of what happened, which <laughs> was uh, we invited our whole recruiting team to Austin, Texas last week. That's and sick. we like sat down and we we're like, okay, how are we going to grow this business? And then we we're like, everybody is hiring SDRs. And then the first idea was like, we need some SDRs. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's get an SDR. It's like, well, what are they going to do? It's like, you're going to wake up in the morning and there's going to be three phone calls preloaded for you to take. And they're just going to convert into sales. But you know what's crazy (laughs) about that? What's crazy about that, Ian? When
0: I used to make pitches for my programmatic SEO services, that's exactly the sales pitch I would make. Exactly. I would say... yeah. You're going to wake up in the morning, we were using Infusionsoft at the time, and you're going to have three opt-ins with their phone number, and they're going to be warm leads that want our stuff. That's why you should invest in SEO.
1: Yeah. And that was like the flow back then too, by the way. It was like SEO, then it was like social media, then it was like, well, now everybody's on the internet. So like, what are we doing? We're like going back to the SDR. It's easy to find these people that are potential customers. So, like, let's go out and find them, warm them up, tell them about our product, and then set them up with a call. If you're going to start a business today, which would you invest in? SEO for two thousand dollars a month or SDR for two thousand dollars a month? SDR all day long. It's crazy. It's like coming back around. That's interesting that you say that. It's true. Ten years ago, when
0: SEO was the primary strategy, especially if you're in like a lot of these B two B niches, like a lot of these Bs. They're not on the internet. Like, you don't know who this person is. Well, now at least they all have a LinkedIn profile. Yeah. And most of them have a Google page with reviews, and all these local businesses are legible online now. And then combine that with the fact that SEO is a combination like super competitive, super long term. And let's face it, I don't even know how to find things on Google anymore. I don't know how it works. I just type in whatever website I want to go to after my Google query. I just think Google is a really hard game to win right now, especially when we have these targeted business-to-business products. It's like, we have a target market of 5,500 people. We know where they all exist virtually. Let's make sure we're reaching out to 100 of them every single day. One of the things we've been talking about from a recruiting strategy is like, a lot of people listening can relate to this, is our clients pay us to be the experts. And so say you need a COO or you need a head of sales or whatever, we're going to make sure that that works. That's our job. But the interesting thing about like VA hires and some of these more opportunistic things is that they do work a lot because a lot of times the company doesn't have an economic model for it, right? They're just, they're being more opportunistic. They're trying to see if it works. They're running experiments. But when those experiments work out, they can go like internally viral. When like the CEO gets a virtual assistant and they're like, dang, man, like all these piles of crap are now much smaller piles of crap. Everybody goes and gets a VA, right? It goes viral internally. And the same thing happens with SDRs. It's like, oh my gosh, our pipeline is really heating up. We need more SDRs, right? And you start to then build out your sophistication and systems around leveraging in SDRs. You build out a sales team essentially. But I think the challenge for us as consultants is a lot of clients are going to fail, but then a few clients will kind of go internally viral right? And they'll take off with it. And that's like that product consultant mindset that is hard, is challenging to traverse. And it took us a while, I think, to accept the fact that when it comes to an SDR hire, a lot of our clients will be opportunistic and a lot of them will fail. Not the same mindset we bring to the COO hires.
1: Right. You can't fail at that. It is such a big role, right? Yeah. It's like six figures on the line. They're going to come into your company. The onboarding costs are tremendous, five figures. Like the failure rate there needs to be very low. Yeah. One more crazy story about SDRs back in the day. And this is like way back in the day. This was like 10 plus years ago. We're paying VAs in the Philippines to build lists, basically, of like people we should approach for the product that we're selling. And then I would send them an email or I would call them. And then back in the day, like Google Analytics was real time. So we had so few customers that we could like go into Google Analytics and like see if they were actually on their computer. And then I knew if they were a qualified lead and then I would hit him really hard at that point.
0: I would love to hear that sales script, by the way. It's like, hey, Paul, how much value would your parking operation got if you had some high quality valet parking (laughs) products from me?
1: Well, see, that's the thing, my friend, is like we were talking about the thing that wasn't the thing. So we were talking about a a directory, if you remember. That's right. Yeah, It was like get in the directory, get more business, and then we're going to sell you our products.
0: Which nowadays, the common strategy would be called like a B2B podcast. So you would like reach out to an executive. You'd be like, I want to interview for my podcast that like 150 people listen to. But like 150 people is more than nothing, and they're willing to do it, and you start to build a relationship. So it's a similar kind of like thing that's not the thing. Ultimately, they're trying to get a deal going. They're doing business development.
1: Right. So then fast forward a couple of years, it was kind of the same thing, which was like, okay, I'm going to hire a VA, scrape all these lists. And then like internally, our sales team is going to like reach out to people on this list. And then you have all these, either you have the operators of the business, maybe you didn't even have a sales team, but like you had the operators like reaching out to like try and do sales within the organization. That was always a bust too, because these people weren't good at it.
0: And the word I'm hearing is, yeah, experience, good English, but also consistency. That's the word that I keep hearing from the clients is, I know I can have success with this because I do it like a couple hours a week and it works. The problem is I can't do it consistently eight hours a day. And that's the point of an SDR. Finally, just a shout out to the ROI of getting your team together in person. It's complicated emotionally for us to both be consultants and have a more productized offering. And so it took us six hours to like figure out what the details of that looked like for each individual in the team. And so that was like great fun to get together to hang out here in Austin, Texas. Speaking of hanging out, Ian, one of our former team members, an entrepreneur extraordinaire, also an agency owner, Vince Wynn dropped by the show this week to share some thoughts he had about firing back up Growth Ninja, which is a story we've tracked over the years over the past decade here on the pod, and Vince. The three of us used to work together on a day-to-day basis. We have a ton of respect for him. And what I love about him is the unique way, the counterintuitive way in which he runs his agency. So we're going to run that conversation now. Thanks for joining us on the pod this week, Ian. We'll see you next week. See you then. So this is always challenging as a podcaster because for those listening along at home, Vince and I have been on the phone hundreds of times And like the first podcast we did must have been over 10 years ago. I think I can pull up the date.
2: Was it the family one, Dan, where I talked about how I lied to my family for three years. I was secretly running my (laughs) six-figure company without them knowing. They thought I was still uh, taking online college classes while I was abroad Uh living with the Empire Slippers. for those of you in the know. The theme of today's show is navigating the pressures of
0: friends, family, and colleagues. Vincent Wynn is the founder of Growth Ninja, and this was written in 2017, a performance-based Facebook ads company. You may remember, Vincent, from an episode we posted a few years ago about apprenticeships. So that was like a few years ago in 2017. Vince has paid his dues in the world of entrepreneurship, having worked with the Empire Flippers before starting Growth Ninja in 2015, all the while hiding the fact that he
2: dropped out of college from members of his immediate family. (laughs) Yeah, I don't remember if I told you the full story, man. But late 2013, I was going to this community college in Arizona because I didn't know what I want to do with my life. So I guess I go to college so my family is not hassling me. But I'm not going to pay the tuition at ASU. And so I freaking do my dues and do three semesters at this community college. And then I stumble upon a tweet by Sean Ogle saying best opportunity I've ever seen or something along those lines. And I click it and I get that apprenticeship. And I'm like, there's no way this is flying back home with my family who's, they came here on a boat, dude. Like you tell them, hey guys, thanks for setting me up and putting me through high school. I'm going to drop out of college and live in Phillips, <laughs> the same continent that you just escaped from not too long ago. So I basically just would write back and saying, You know, work's going great. My studies are going great. My professors are letting me do it online. And I kept that going for a few years before I just said, you know what, guys, this is so stupid. No, I'm good. I'm not in college. I haven't been since late 2013. (laughs) Vince, you started Growth Ninja almost a decade ago now. Nine years.
0: What was the genesis of the business? And it's an agency. And you do things your own way. I want to try to break that down a little bit for the audience about why what you've done is unique and how others can model it.
2: Well, I'll say agency might be too kind of word. I think I'm a glorified freelancer, if you think about it. But the genesis started was, you know, I was still, you know, a marketing director for Empire Flippers. So that was late 2014. And I just remember being at DCBDK, you know, the Dynamite Circles flagship event that happens every October. A oh, quick plug for you there. Yeah, okay yeah. In charge. That good. Dude, I just remember being in the parking lot and I'm just like, just at the 7-Eleven right by the hotel, the venue. Where the magic happens. Yeah, that's where the magic happens, dude. And I'm just looking around. I'm like, these people are f-ing badass. And they're ordering some expensive food not giving a sh. right? And I remember thinking in my head, can I pay for this? I wasn't super well off in my role there. You know, it was a small company at the time. Empire Flippers was not the size of where it is these days. So I was like basically employee number one or two or something like that. And so I was just, like doing the math in my head. And I'm like, well, this is a good gig, but like, I think there's kind of a ceiling on this thing, right? And the ceiling ain't that high, Southeast Asia or not. So I'm like, okay, well, I got to do my own thing. I got to be someone who's attending this event and I paid my own way. And so literally I sat down with my then boss, Justin, and I just told him like, here's kind of what I'm planning, man. Just, you know, getting your thoughts on this. And then just a few months later, I resigned from the company. And then January 2nd, was the day I um, opened up that laptop and just started sending emails. I registered the ninja.com domain. I think I had to pay some 50 bucks for it because it was already registered. And like, just started sending emails, brought on Empire Flippers. as one of my first clients and another first client of mine. So classic, you anchored into
0: your last job. I think that's like a really good sign for uh, an agency founder. If you can sell your services back to your previous gig.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And they were super supportive. They came on. And the guy who, funny enough, who is also another or who gave me the idea for doing Facebook ads as my business, he also came board, on board as one of my first clients. So right off the bat. What was his name? You want to shout him out? Yeah. Kevin Koskella. Kevin And Cuskella. at the time, nice. he was doing triswimcoach.com, if I recall correctly. But dude, having those first two clients kind of right off the bat just made it feel really good. You know what I mean? Like I didn't know what I was doing as far as client acquisition goes and to have these two companies come on board and say, we'll give you a shot. Yeah, it was just, it just felt good. How would you describe
0: over the 10-year period Growth Ninja's financial performance? Is there some way you can give us a sense of how successful it's been financially what the scale of the business has been?
2: Yeah, I mean, I can't complain. It's been good. I started the company in January 2015. My first five-figure month was literally like May of that year, I think. So it was pretty quick. And uh, we'll probably talk about this later. But like, I've been semi-retired for a while. And I just came back out of retirement. Probably October last month, I sent an invoice to one of my clients for like 20-something thousand. I'm going to invoice that same client for like 30 this month. Most clients that I work with for a long time, they usually pay me like five figures every single month. Because I take percentage of gross. So like, you know... If I only work with clients that I'm spending a lot on ad spend and generating a lot of gross revenue, I end up eating pretty well too. And you're sitting on a big old house that you own
0: and all that. So this is a definitely a success story. I think it's interesting that you've been able to sunset the business and not encounter a lot of the challenges that agency owners traditionally face. A few of them I'll point them out. One is like team management, one is declining margins as you scale. One is like arbitrages that close over the period of time. I mean, you're able to shut your business down and start it back up. And it seems just as strong as ever. What have you done that's unique that other agency owners aren't doing?
2: So whenever I talk to agency friends of mine, I'm as confused about their circumstance as they are about mine. Usually, everyone assumes I have a big old team and that I do like everything. They assume I do, you know, oh, you're doing the ads, but you're also in the email marketing, you're doing the funnels, you're in the landing page. And then I always assume that they have really high profit margins and they have a small team and they only do ads. But the reality is they do the whole shebang. They do everything from A to Z. And as a result, they've got to hire a ton of staff to fulfill on that. They got to eat into their own margins. And then their clients got to deal with not dealing with the best advertiser in the company because the best advertiser is too busy dealing with other accounts. So unfortunately, what happens is when you promise all these services, when you say yes to every client that wants to work with you, whether or not they already have things like funnels and email marketing, you end up like kind of spreading yourself thin for not a ton of gross or net for yourself. If you're doing like what I do, only working with companies who have their stuff together, they already have the funnels proven. They're already ideally running Facebook ads profitably and just need someone like me to scale it. Your work is way less and you get to actually deal with considerable budgets because they're already doing that successfully. I would never, ever really take on a client unless for whatever reason, I have a really good feeling that it's going to be absolute home run. If they're like, Vincent, we've run Facebook ads in the past and this hasn't been working. Yeah, we need to do our email sequence. We need to do their funnels as well. I feel like, no way. Like the trade off is insane. The amount of work required to do that for something that might not even work, to me, that's absolutely ludicrous. That's always seems insane. Like I turn down 90, 95% of clients who reach out to me. And even if I bring a client on board, I fire them because I realize this isn't worth my time. And if it's not worth my time, if it's not getting me personally excited, I don't show up and do my best work for them. I want to work yeah. with clients that get me excited. Cool products, cool personalities, cool brands. And also, you it know, helps that they have big budgets too. I'm on your website. The first word that
0: jumps out besides your brand, Growth Ninja, is no in red. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a couple things that I have to insert like TMBA concepts. Number one, you are filling an efficiency gap, not a knowledge gap. Agency owners love to be in that knowledge space where they're educating their clients. You're basically saying, unless you're a straight gangster when it comes to Facebook ads, no, no, I will not touch you. Why do you think this strategy of you're kind of like the guy, you know, you're not cheap, but you're the guy. And why do you think it's hard for others to emulate this strategy?
2: Dude, I've tried to figure that out and I don't know. You know, when I was exiting semi-retirement, I was a bit nervous, for sure. Because I'm like, dude, maybe I just got really lucky for those first several, like, six years or so. Like, maybe I just got really freaking lucky, man. Could I do it again? And like, I spent maybe a few days or a week doing outreach stuff. And I'm like, oh, wait, hold on. It's basically as easy as I remembered. And I think it's because I stayed strict with that kind of focus of like, why waste time on someone who isn't already having it figured out? You could open the Facebook ad library right now. Just Google Facebook ad library. It'll be the first result, right? And you could literally search up uh, people who are currently running Facebook ads for pretty much anything imaginable. And you could see just how much business is out there. Like if a referral or a uh, prospect hits you up and there's no evidence they've ran ads or are currently running ads, odds are pretty good. You're not going to magically give them that silver bullet that they were missing. I mean, you could... But the amount of work required to get there, it's like, why do that? Why not go after the established business who is already running Facebook ads profitably and need someone to help them add a couple more zeros? Like That's literally all I do. I don't touch the other stuff. You're the
0: comma guy. Let's add some commas.
2: I'm not the comma guy, man. And anytime I've ever like strayed away from that, I've regretted it. And I always feel like a total jerk sending them an email saying, hey, I don't think we're the best fan. Like this past month alone, I've probably fired three or four clients, one of them right before we even started anything because I'm like, wait, what am I doing? Like, why did I say yes to this? This doesn't even fit my criteria. And I think I know how this is going to go. What's your criteria? Let's walk through it. The criteria is simple, man. It's literally just, are you already profitable? And ideally, profitable via Facebook ads. But if you're someone who's already profitable in other ways, and maybe you've run Facebook ads in the past and it stopped working, that's fine. Because here's a secret for you, Dan. Most people who run ads aren't very good. I've just audited so many. And the amount of fundamentals, one one level type stuff that they don't do is mind-boggling. And I'll give you an example, actually. I won't name any names, obviously. But this is a client that I turned down because they're just not in the industry that's interesting to me. Like I can't hop out of my bed excited to work for their business, right? And if I had taken them on board based on what I take gross revenue-wise, they would have been a $10,000 per month client. But the problem with the way they were running their campaigns was that, for example, they weren't doing any kind of Advantage Plus at the campaign level, which is a newer feature for Facebook ads, which works really, really well for me. They were only... Advantage Plus basically makes it so that they use an algorithm and this allows you from telling it what to do on an audience targeting perspective, and it just does the magic for you. Like That's where the vast majority of my spend goes now because that outperforms any of the manual stuff. So they weren't doing that. And on top of that, they were doing the manual targeting stuff still, but they were only doing three audiences over and over and over again with no iterations on them. And then they were only running one creative with no further testing. And the worst part of that Okay, fine. If it's not a winner, that's fine. We all have our winners. We love to run. But the worst part of it was they had like 50 of these of the same ad, but none of them were using the same post ID Then, which means if they got 5,000 likes, it would have been all standard across 50 of those ads instead of the 5,000 likes being aggregated into one ad, which means all the comments mm-hmm. were fragmented across all those dozens of ads. So I'm like, wait, this is literally like if I just had my girlfriend, for example, who doesn't know anything about Facebook ads, take a Facebook ad course, I would have made sure that she had these principles in mind. But here's my point, right? For agency owners out there, there's a ton of these businesses out there who are doing quite well, much like this client or this prospect that I was talking about. And they're missing these fundamentals, these very easy, obvious 101s, and they're still doing well. Now imagine if you get in there yeah. and you do the... Basic fundamentals. I don't think I'm the world's best Facebook advertiser at all. Like I'm probably far from it, but I don't miss the fundamentals. I make sure I don't miss any of these easy gimme's. And it's kind of sad. I feel like the bar for Facebook ads is so damn low these days, man. Like it kind of freaks me out a little bit. Okay, a couple things. So first thing about objections
0: that agency owners might have, which is if a client segment is already good at Facebook ads. Why would I target them? How am I going to get in the door if they're already doing well on Facebook ads? So you're saying if someone is already working with an agency that they're happy with? Not only that, but say they have an internal team working on, on ads. Because a lot of these larger companies do.
2: I don't think I've ever really ran into that objection in a very serious way. Anyone who I reach out to or have reached out to me they're usually pretty unhappy with their business performance like on Facebook ads. Because usually what would have happened is they might have been up here like at a certain return on ad spend and have seen that gradual decline. And it's very rare, again, that whoever's running their ads has just been on the ball and they're just fighting this uphill battle. The vast majority of what happens is if you open the edit history, because you can look at any campaign in the Facebook ad account and see the edit history, which means you can see exactly when it was last edited, the date by whom, and what they did. Odds are very good that the edit history hasn't been changed in weeks or months. And this has been a consistent theme whenever I at the ad account since 2015. Hmm. So yes, there are these theoretical situations. But it's so, so, so rare. There's so much opportunity out there because of agencies and advertisers dropping the ball that if you're doing a good job, you're consistent, you have a personality that they gel with, you're probably going to at least be given a chance. You know what I mean?
0: With performance-based pricing, I'm curious about the genesis of that and how it works. So say like you're spending a ton of money on behalf of your client. Now you're taking this big rake and they can look at the edit history and be like, well, why are we going to pay Vince 10,000 bucks a month if like we can just take over the account and keep it going and that rolls into our coffers.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's something that there are sometimes when people bring that up as a hypothetical, like on a prospective call, they're like, oh, we want to work with you. And then I talk about it. They usually ask that question. And I usually just chuckle. I say, you absolutely can do that. You want to know why, Dan? Because every time they've asked that, they have never, ever followed up. They weren't actually serious. I'm not really sure why they took the call in the first place, but I usually just chuckle and say, you absolutely could do that. You can scoot me over. Absolutely. And I've never been followed up by those people. People who I work with best, they don't think in th- those terms because they see the results. Like, for example, the first client I brought on post my retirement they've been through half a dozen ad agencies and all of them, they, none of them actually were able to cut the cost per acquisition down to 250. This is a product that charges 200 ish per year. And my first day on the job, I cut their CPA in half. I tripled their ad spend. And now we're actually spending 10 times more than they ever did on any given month. And on top of that, they used to run YouTube ads, millions every single year that went straight to zero two years ago. I don't even (laughs) really know YouTube ads that well. Took a crack at it. Now we're spending thousands and thousands per day on YouTube ads. So like, yes, this client could easily cut me out but they would have to go through another half a dozen agencies that failed to like do what I'm able to do. Walk me through your pricing. So it's
0: no yeah. upfront. You guys are vetting each other like doing some heavy dating in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then you're taking a specific percentage of yeah. all spe- does it scale based on the total volume or you just continue to take the percentage if you're spending 100,000 versus a million?
2: So, I take 10 to 15% of gross revenue that I generate from my ads specifically. So, obviously, I don't touch organic or anything like that. And I don't really implement a tier system unless it's something discussed ahead of time. You see, with e commerce companies, obviously, 10 to 15% is a huge ask. So, we have to be a little bit more like negotiating there. But I really love working with digital products. So, I talked to someone recently who said he loved working with SaaS companies. And I'm like, SaaS companies, like, Dude, I haven't worked with a SaaS company since 2016 because I remember, I don't remember exactly the thought process, but I just remember going, No way, I'm not touching SaaS companies. Like, there's no profit there, there's no scale. And uh, let's just say this person was kind of asking for my advice. And I'm like, My advice is don't do SaaS anymore, man. Like, it's so much harder. And e commerce, there's plenty of e commerce companies out there, but I'm just saying digital is the way to go because if they don't have any expenses, anything, Above a one point, let's say one X return on the ad spend, you can literally make the multimillionaires with that kind of margins.
0: So these are products like courses and things like that.
2: Courses, anything that doesn't have a giant cost of goods sold every time you make a sale. Now, that doesn't mean you can't have physical components to a digital, that could always come later. But for me, the unofficial criteria is sort of like I love courses. So I get excited if you tell me, oh, you've been running Facebook ads possibly a course creator, I'm like, dude, get me in there. You don't need to pay me. A, I just want you to get me in there so I can show you the difference in results. Like if you're that confident, that's a pretty easy sell, man. Like I literally tell people, dude, you don't owe me anything if I'm not performing. Like a client that I actually really enjoyed um, that I fired recently was because I thought they were doing such a fantastic job in-house. And my campaigns after my fees, it's not worth it. So, dude, I'm not going to invoice you at all. I'm bowing out. And I also want to say, congratulations. You have a kick yes team. Like, I think if you have that personality, people don't really ask you all of these questions and tire kick that much. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. Well, what I want to hear from you is how do you nail premium clients? Because I was always really impressed that you had these premium clients that spent so much, and yet you were mm-hmm. just getting started as an agency. And I see so many people struggle, yet you're just premium, 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 always. Tell me about the process of getting the attention and closing the deal with marquee people. An example would be like somebody like a Tim Ferriss
2: or like, you know what I mean? Like somebody who's like a- that's uh, tough, yeah. I've never worked at that level. So here's the thing, dude. (laughs) What's the process to land a marquee client that's a household name? I have no clue. I'm in the business of like making these people. My big clients, they weren't big spenders when I came on board. They were spending like peanuts. And I'm like, wait a minute. Those are some juicy margins, man. This is like all digital. And this is consistent. Okay, let me see what I can do. Like the story of this client that you're talking about, one of my first biggest clients, was literally me and this dude hanging out at a coffee shop every Tuesday. We would co-work. And he'd be like, hey, Vince, this looks pretty good, right? I'm like, yeah, you should bump that up. The next (laughs) thing, Vince, I bumped it up. Dude, you got to bump it up more. And then repeated this four or five more weeks. And I'm like, dude, I'm just going to take this over for you. And like, I literally just scaled it like crazy. I think it's just a matter of like, to get these clients, to make these clients, you got to stop messing around with the clients who like are going to be a ton of work just to get them to baseline break even. Work with clients who are like either already doing well, but don't know what they're doing in terms of scale. There are a ton of them, by the way. Or work with clients who are like, this close and you could see that if you just added a little bit of your skills it takes to the next level i wish i could just give you this sort of playbook but i don't think it's sending thousands and thousands of boring cold emails for me and my adhdness which i'm sure comes across in the way i talk and how (laughs) i might be bouncing around uh in these topics But like for me, I hate doing boring stuff. I can't do thousands of emails a day, and I can't even get myself to delegate that to someone because that's boring, and I wouldn't wouldn't want them to do boring work. I'll talk about this client that I'm about to bring on. It's it's in a space. Let's just say it's an athletic sports space that I personally play, and I was like wondering, oh, is there a course out there? Horseback riding, right? It's exactly. Let's we'll say horseback, <laughs> Damn it. I was trying to be sneaky, but you got me. So I went out in Facebook. Okay. So you can steal this tip, whoever's listening. I literally went to the Facebook ad library. I typed in quote unquote horseback riding course and I scrolled around. I filtered for active only. And I'm like, oh, so these guys are doing it. And I noticed, hey, the head dude, the head, just got inducted into the, uh, the horseback riding hall of fame. So I'm like, this is fun. I set up this mock course in my house using tape, a piece of paper, and a measuring tape. And then I took my iPhone out, put it on front of your camera, and I said, hey, congratulations on making the Hall of Fame for X Sport. Don't mind me. I'm just getting some reps in and practicing. Anyway, while I do this, hope you don't mind me running through what I do and why I'm reaching out. So I literally just said, hey, just got out of semi-retirement. I worked with all these types of businesses doing this, this, and that with Facebook ads. With that said, I see you guys are crushing with Facebook ads. I just want to get in the conversation and see if there's a fit there. If not, no worries. Hope we got a kick out of this. Like I did four-ish of these videos and I got that response back. And this guy is like, yeah, I'm going to create a whole new course and I want to work with you on it. And I did a few more things that are similar along those veins. And I got a ridiculously high response rate on these. And I think for me personally, someone who is so ADHD, I need fun stuff like that for me to even do it. And I think bringing your own creativity and personality and stuff like that nets you a way higher response rate. There are some scrolls behind me and I've only sent six of those out to businesses I want to work with, each personalized with like what I'm saying to them specifically. And I got two out of six to respond back to me. And those were big companies. What's a scroll? I can show you, but basically the idea, feel free to steal this, um, anyone who's listening, I just went on a Canva. I found a template that looked like an old-timey, you know, ye old scroll. Yeah. I wrote, hey, of MBA. And then I referenced there's some stuff that only someone who did a little bit of research would know. Talked about some stuff that I'm able to do. My results and stuff. Gave them my email address, phone number. Literally rolled it up into a scroll, put it into a tube, which you can see to the left or right of my watch box there. And then I mailed it to their office. So a little bit more steps than an email, but two out of six response for big companies. I mean, shoot, I'll take it. The next evolution of of that as well is you can literally stick a QR code in there and make a video and like video yourself putting together the scroll, you know, make it a little bit meta. The more you could do things that literally no one else is doing, that's worth at least a conversation. And if not, that's a fun little story for yourself. You know what I mean? There's
0: something that I think that's interesting about you, which is like, part of the reason this works is like there's an authenticity to your message is that you're a legit ads nerd, which is like, you're not just like some thirsty dude that needs a sale.
2: And also just authentically nerdy too. Like Dana Lindahl and Rob uh, Hanley can both attest because we've talked about this very recently that I do the most untraditional, unconventional things. And it usually works out because it's who I am. Like this scroll thing, this video while playing this sport inside my own house thing, people would hear that and be like, what? That's like kind of stupid. It's a waste of time. I'm like, it is stupid. It is stupid. And that's why I'm going to do it because that's what I think is fun in that specific moment in time. And I'm going to ship it because the worst case scenario is they don't respond. And if you're sending out cold emails, you're getting a 1% response rate anyway, right? Isn't that the average? So like, who cares? I just wasted two minutes of my time, like big whoop. But it works for me because that's my brand. So like, find your own way of showing off your personality without sending out thousands of cold emails that go to spam.
0: A lot of agency owners who are in the space of marketing, they then get tempted to get into the product game because distribution is typically the hardest part. Getting people to buy your course is sometimes harder than creating the course itself. So why aren't you tempted to jump into, like if you know all the top performing products, Why not just create a product factory and then just own the whole thing?
2: That sounds like a lot of work for like little payoffs compared to what I do. And besides, when I get excited enough about a client, I find ways to own more and turn into a win-win situation. So recently in the Dynamite Circle, shout out dynamitecircle.com, great forum, great people. Someone recently asked, hey, help me out. I need to figure out ways to like scale what I'm doing, some new deliverables for a client. And I'm like, you know what? I'll share what I'm up to right now. I'm not going to give you the exact names and industry, but like, here's what I'm doing. I have a client who has a specific funnel that's doing really, really well. I also know someone who's really great at creating funnels and products, front-end products. So I pitched it and I said, look, I'm going to have someone create a front-end product that on the back-end will funnel into the core product. And I'm going to cover all the ad spend that goes to this front-end product. So I get all of the net profits from that as a result. Mm. And then I also want 50% of the backend. So basically, it's sort of an affiliate play, except now I get to use their assets, their resources, their Facebook page, their email list, and all these beautiful things. So it's not just a faceless offer. It's an offer that's branded by them. Uh, an offer that has their backing, that feeds the core product that works as a valuable resource And the great part is now they get the back-end sales without paying any ad spend. And I still get a piece of that, except I get to keep the net on the front end. So I basically own this thing without myself having to even really do much work creating it because now I've got this great partner who I'm sharing some of that net with. And then, you know, you could do things like that. Like I always hear, oh, I'm just going to go create this thing. Like, dude, that's freaking hard, man. You know how hard it is to create a freaking product? You can't just snap your fingers and do that. But you know what is relatively easy? Working with some big old clients and making it a win-win where they can't really say no. Like, how do you say no to like, we're going to create a completely new product for you and use my own money to bring you more customers. And on top of that, I'm still getting paid on the original funnel. So I mean, like, it's everybody wins on this thing. And if it works out really well, then we're just going to print money for everybody. So there are ways to own stuff without starting from scratch. And I think that's the best play for a lot of advertisers is don't literally go into a completely different ocean that you're completely unfamiliar with. Go somewhere tangential. I think it's amazing. I honestly do. And
0: you've never had a team member. You've only had like a handful of team members and you don't mind keeping it
2: focused enough. You can get through all the deliverables, all the work. Yep. No problem. Yep. I've only ever had, let's see, one employee, I think back in like 2015 or 16, because common knowledge was you need a team. And I never knew what to give her for work because it's not like there's that much to do when it comes to Facebook ads. It's literally just doing the Facebook ads. So then I got rid of her. And then like 2017 or 18, I had an employee for a few months and I literally was like, yeah, I'm going to talk to my biggest client and see if they want to hire her. So I literally talked to my biggest client who was also local. And I said, hey... I'm not needing her anymore. If you want to work with her, she's available. So I basically got them together. And to this day, they're still working together like five years later or whatever. So, And ever since then, it's been solo. I will say that a very real problem that businesses who hire agencies have and feel is the frustration they get when they get on the phone call with ABC agency and they talk to this smooth talker Maybe they've been to the head honcho or like the senior advertiser. And maybe this person even runs the campaign for a month. And then a month later, sure enough, they get kicked down to the junior who clearly usually doesn't know what they're doing. So they start out great, then performance goes down. Literally, if you look at my website, one of the value props spells it out because I saw that kind of hole in the market, if you will. I literally say, it's just me. I'm the person on the phone. I'm the person running these ads. I'm the person sending you these reports every week. And that, to me... Is like a huge differentiator between everyone else who's like delegating everything away. There was this recent group chat actually asking how many agency owners here delegate and, and outsource everything. Literally nine people said yes, and I was the only lone person that said no. And I'm like, wait, so what are you doing for the, with the rest of your time then? And also, Facebook Ad doesn't even take that much time. So, what is everybody doing? Why do you have such a big team? It's always confuse me. You know what I mean? I think less truly is more when it comes to this stuff. And that ends up leading to better results for your clients. Do you see other
0: niches that have the potential like paid ads or paid ads unique in this sense?
2: Paid ads is unique in the sense of like, I put a dollar in, what did I get out of it? SEO, I admire the people who have built really great businesses around SEO. But that would scare me because I'm so impatient. I need that sort of instant gratification. And when I say it's Mm -hmm. gratification in the world of paid ads, that's like within a couple of days, right? And so with SEO, it's like, yeah, put this up and wait six months. We'll see what happens. There was a thread recently in the DC forum asking about, oh, does anyone here know a performance-based SEO agency? And just like I suspected, people were like, well, you can't really do that. There isn't really a way to pull that off because the lines get blurred. While with Facebook ads, assuming you have like attribution systems set up uh, properly, it's very clear. The money hits your account. You have a third-party software that tells you where does that sale come from, and then you go from there. It's instant.
0: Right. You can go to your client and say, like, I made you $10,000. I would like yep. my $1,500 back, essentially. And
2: if there's any doubt in the data, you can literally show them exactly how the software works. So if anyone out there is listening and they're not using a third-party tracking software like Hyros, Triple Whale, North Bean, and relying on the Facebook Ads dashboard, yeah, you don't want to do that because the funny thing about Facebook Ads dashboard is it could either underreport or overreport, or funny enough, do both simultaneously. And if you want, I can walk into the technical details of how that works. But you want a software that basically integrates your payment processor like Stripe or something, and when that sale comes in, it looks at the email address and slash or IP address, and then maps out where they came from based off the UTM parameters that you plugged in. Got it. And what's UTM mean? I actually don't know what it stands for. Unique tracking or something. UT. <laughs> unique tracking something. I know something. what it does, but what does it stand for? IDK. You know. <laughs> Let's see. U- urchin tracking module. Oh, boy. What the heck is an urchin? Man, you don't even have to cut this part out. I don't care if people don't know. Oh, know that I don't know what UTM stands for. That's right, prospective people listening. I don't know what UTM stands for, and I bet you didn't either. <laughs>
0: What about the agency owner says, Vince, this can't scale. You know, you have to show up. You have to sit at your desk. You have to sit in these ad accounts. You're not going to be able to scale your
2: income. Dan, I started playing Fortnite at 7 a.m. this morning. What the heck do you mean it can't scale? (laughs) That's like a Fortnite before I got on this call, Dan. What do you mean it can't scale? (laughs) Elaborate, Vince. (laughs) (laughs) The point is, if you're not offering the world to them, if you're not offering funnels, landing pages, email sequences. Facebook ads does not take a long time for one simple reason. You can't just launch a campaign, look at the result eight hours later and determine if it's a winner or a loser. It's something that you, you let it sit, hopefully, for at least a couple of days before you scale or kill. Yeah. Because if you make decisions based off those first few hours, dude, you're making decisions based off of like bad data. This stuff takes time. And the funny thing with YouTube ads, I learned, is that with YouTube ads, it takes a full freaking week and it's immediately obvious because cost per lead is literally triple or even quadruple or sometimes even 10x are usual. And then literally, it just drops down to our normal levels, Use it within five to seven days. And then suddenly, it's a scalable asset. So I don't know what people are talking about when they say, Facebook ads take so much work. I don't know how you're able to scale this with just you. It's like, there's not much to do. Like There's very correct decisions you could make, but it's like two days later after you make a new campaign. You can always be setting up for the next campaign and the next campaign, but there's no like 24-7 actual work to be done.
0: I'm not building like a saleable asset anxiety. What do you think when you, you have a lot of entrepreneur friends who, you know, like the Empire Flippers, they could maybe sell that for X numbers of millions of dollars. What do you think when you think about Growth Ninja for nine years? What about the opportunity scope of being this kind of single agency owner?
2: You know, I have the opposite of that and I don't know how to define it. If I had someone drop $100 million in my bank account, I'd be deathly afraid because I'm like, I need a little bit of fear in me. I need this anxiety of like, oh my goodness, if this stops working tomorrow, how much runaway do I have? How many years is that? It's like, if you gave me a number that literally completely wiped out that anxiety, what do I do? Like, I'm a little different from everyone else in that regard where I'm not about maximalizing my own net worth no matter what it takes. Like, yes, it definitely helps to make a lot per client. But there's a certain sweet spot. You know, I wouldn't want to sell an agency for $100 million because I wouldn't know what to do with all that time and money. One of the things I've been joining with is
0: this idea of the super consultant. And I just thought it's like they're one-person businesses where you can work 25 hours a week or less and make over a quarter million dollars a year. Mm-hmm. And it seems like you've stumbled onto this concept of a super consulting. How much energy does it take to generate that kind of income?
2: For me, I do enjoy when I am urged to work more than like the minimum. Like when I'm constantly thinking of new projects and ideas and like bonuses and funnels and stuff like that, that's exciting because the fact that I'm, that excited in doing it. That means I really care about like what this particular client is accomplishing. I prioritize fun, pretty much over anything else. Like that's kind of the main focus. So what is fun for me is like industries I care about, an actual good product, and of course whether or not it's gonna be viable on Facebook ads because I hate losing people money. So that's gonna be not gonna be very fun if I tell them. You should absolutely run ads even though it looks like unlikely to succeed because that would kill me. I hate losing yeah.
0: money. Yeah, it makes sense. What sort of advice do you have for people listening that are like, I want to make money in this. I want to do the Vince Wynn style.
2: Get creative, Then Use that ad library. Find a client that has a really good brand and figure out, oh, do I have something to add here? If you, I bet you, if you look on this ad library or even look on your newsfeed, you're going to see a lot of ads that are like one or two sentences long, maybe three if you're lucky. And my best ads are usually like stories. And one of my best ads right now literally has my name in it. I'm like, hey, I'm Vince. You're reading the ad I'm writing right now. And basically what I do with that ad format without getting too specific is basically rehashing the value prop of the end client and also repeating like why you should trust them and then i actually weave my own actual personal narrative into it where i'm like look in the history of 9 years of doing this there've only ever been two clients i insist that we get on a weekly call with because i enjoy the company so much and i think there's a lot of cool stuff we do here this is one of them this person is so trustworthy so funny that you're going if you buy this you're absolutely going to feel the way i feel about this person when you're interacting with their product it's a little cringe. It's a little like, what the heck? But that's like literally my best performing ad copy right now. Just kind of think outside the box. Look at what everyone else is doing. And don't make the automatic assumption that that's the best practices. Because I think it's easy for us to be like, oh, there's a lot of ads here that are really short. I, mm-hmm. I guess best practice is long doesn't work. I don't think based on my data, that's the case. Because the vast majority of the time, long storytelling is the best converting stuff.
0: That's really interesting.
2: How did you identify that?
0: Like, what is the personality of a good ads person?
2: What's a personality? It's someone who's actually just curious about the data. Like, doesn't get married to like this masterpiece that they just wrote and strongly feel like this creative that they just drew up has to win and they're going to spend as much money as possible to prove it. Like, I don't get married to anything I write or do. It's like, I just let the data guide me. And then kill what isn't working and reiterate on what is working. You don't get offended by feedback.
0: No. You want to win. My last name is win. All he does is win. And uh, it's interesting that uh, I think there is agency, you know, you have a bunch of team members and all this, like, they're, I'm an expert. You know, it's like, well, is your stuff working or not? That's right. the main thing.
2: And honestly, you can't like take feedback too seriously. Like that, hey, I'm Vince thing I did literally one of the first comments, probably the second or third comment from like a viewer was like, oh, this guy must not be very good at marketing. Then, if you <laughs> have to say his name in there, meanwhile, I'm like laughing my way to the bank, looking at the return on that. spend on am saying, excuse my uh, F word, <laughs> but I'm just kind of like, yeah, I must be really bad at this. Cause this is like the best ad that we've got right now. Yeah. So don't take feedback seriously. And honestly, with that said, listen when your client tells you something about their demographic because the first client that I brought on board since getting back to the game, they literally told me the keys. They're like, these agencies won't listen to me. Our demographic wants to hear this and that. Literally, the first thing I did was incorporate that to the ad copy, incorporated it into landing page, ask for more video ads, talking about these pain points, calling up the demographic. Converge rates just went way up. And that was before like testing out a ton of different creatives. It was just that one subtle but kind of important tweak. Don't listen to negative customer feedback, but sort of ask your customers, your clients rather, who have the historical data, okay, how did you come to these conclusions? And if the conclusion is, well, we know our customers because literally we've been doing this for years and we could see the data and we've sent out surveys, you should deep dive into that. That's going to help you make some pretty killer stories and don't be afraid to share personal stories from your clients too, if you think that'll help. Obviously, don't like get weird about it, but if you think it's so, there's a personal story that's touching and relevant to what you're selling, absolutely. Love it. Any final thoughts, Vince? Hopefully, some stuff I talked about today raises the bar a little bit. Cause look, you guys, I've looked up so many ad accounts. Advertisers, we could do so much better, you guys. I see you guys not touching these accounts. I see the edit history. Come on, <laughs> get in there. Make some edits. Come on. What's it gonna cost you? <laughs>
0: we appreciate you coming by. It's growthninja.com, everybody. It's Vincent Wynn. Thank you for stopping by the Tropic NBA podcast for the third time.
2: Make some edits. <laughs>